Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hi everybody, you'll remember in the last edition of the Cricket Badger podcast, myself and Dan Norcross, we got halfway through answering the Cricket Badger 20 questions. Well this is the other half, this is episode, I think it's 102 now actually, because we had an Ashes one in between. This is episode 102, the second part of the 100th episode of the Cricket Badger podcast. Once again, thank you to Dan for his time in joining me on this rather special edition, and thank you obviously to you for listening. We'll start off with something that's become a little bit of a passion of mine, opposing the 100, and then we get on to a few more frivolous things as we go through the rest of this edition. So thanks for listening. Here's the second part of the 100th episode. It's that Badger style. If you could change one thing in world cricket, and only the one thing, what would it be? It's a really simple answer, this one at the moment, Dan. Get rid of any plans to have the 100 introduced next year. I think the ECB's drive to evolve cricket is, is applaudable. I'm certainly not a, a stick in the mud. You'll note from my answers so far that, you know, test cricket and county championship cricket is something very dear to me and has been for an awful long time. But I, I, I love T20s as well. I think, you know, T20 and the growth of T20 around the world. I, I love watching the Big Bash and the IPL and watching new players coming through like Banton at Somerset at the moment who can hit it a mile and play with ridiculous shots. I think it's exciting. Yeah, you know, so there's definite reasons to look for a new audience and this, this so-called new audience and to evolve the game and, and to take it forward. Because it's a game that we all love and the game that we want to see prosper for, for many years to come so that our you know, generations to come can enjoy it as much as we do. But I think the 100 is all wrong. I think the eight-city model is a bit of a two fingers up to anybody that lives you know, beyond commutable distance to it. There was somebody I was talking to the other day who said that you know they lived in Brighton and to get to the Oval, which is their nearest ground for, for the 100, it was going to cost them well over £100 on the train 
to get to a game. So, you know, the talk about cheaper ticket prices is a little bit of a red herring because you're asking an awful lot of people to give an awful lot of time up and a lot of money to commute to games of the 100, which not a lot of people have a huge amount of money just at the moment. So I think that's asking quite a lot of people. Can I put the devil's advocacy on that, though, which is yeah, that sure. the counties will still play their T20, so there will still be matches for Sussex fans to go and watch, and that the ECB may not be really thinking about the 100 being um, a competition that people are travelling distances to come and see, but rather to enthuse the people who live a bit closer but don't currently go and watch cricket, that aren't wedded to counties, that aren't necessarily Surrey fans or Middlesex fans or, or Yorkshire fans but want to come and watch the best stars in the world and they want to see a kind of, you know, like, a, like an all-star game with the very best against the very best and maybe that's what they're looking for. That, that audience which I might suggest to you in the World Cup, we saw a lot of when Bangladesh played Pakistan Lord was absolutely packed with hugely engaged cricket fans who love their cricket. Bet you any money that 10% of them, if that, will regularly go and watch T20s at Middlesex and Surrey. I, I do agree with that to a large extent, but I do think the way it's been introduced, and there's a number of factors here, the way it's been introduced by the ECB with no real consultation or, or nod towards existing cricket fans, it's almost a look of disdain towards existing cricket fans. We're going to find this new audience and we don't really care about you anymore. I think he's definitely there. In fact, I know it's there because I know somebody that actually spoke to Tom Harrison at the ECB and actually asked the question, what about existing cricket fans? And apparently, I wasn't there, but apparently he shrugged his shoulders and said, yeah, so? And I think that's a really bad way of doing it. I think, you know, I, I, as I say, I th- you know, the game needs to evolve and they need to find ways to do it. But I think there are other ways to do to, to evolve the game of cricket. And I think to almost forget your hardcore support, the people that actually pay the bills now, it's horrific. There's no guarantee that new audience is there. You mentioned you know, you know, maybe a few of them might come in from the World Cup, but there's no guarantee that, those, that new audience mm-hmm. is there. The allegiance towards these new city-based teams isn't there. You know, somebody from Durham supporting the Northern Superchargers in Leeds is going to, A, have to travel a long way, and B, have they really got any identification with that team? I don't think they have. And I think, yeah, just the way it's been introduced and, you know, the communication from the ECB last year was appalling, wasn't it? It kind of came out in little bite-sized chunks that another strange thing was going to happen and then another strange thing was was going to happen and the whole of cricket kind of rolled its eyes as as it was going on. And I just think there's, there's other ways to grow the game. They've spent an awful lot of money and, and an awful lot of money on marketing the 100 so far, which is yet to really reap any rewards. The ECB's reserve fund has, has gone down no end. And I think that money could be spent on other things. I think the T20 Blast, which I know you go a lot to, has grown year on year. The crowds this year have been yeah. enormous. And I've been seeing nothing but pictures of full ground at T20 Blast which does geographically cover the whole country and involve the whole country. And we're not a country that's got an MCG where there's 100,000 capacity and there are empty seats when there's 30,000 in the ground. You know, if we have 30,000 coming to a game at Lords, it's full. And the same with every other ground around the country. So, yeah. you know, there's a limit to how many people you can pack into some of these grounds. And a lot of the grounds are at their limit um, at the moment. They can't fit any more in because... Spectators are coming out to watch yeah. the T20 blast. And I, ju- I just think that, you know, it's dangerous because 
A, it, it might not work, and if it doesn't work, they've chucked a load of money at something that's going to be a flop. And if it does work, then there are knock-ons to cricket. If, it, if, if we get a 100 competition which does everything the ECB wants it to do, ticks every single box and fills the grounds and appeases TV companies and makes them excited, then the next step from that is for the ECB to see that one as being the golden goose and to then put even more efforts into that competition because that's the one that's making them the money. And by virtue of that, Dan, county cricket and the 18 counties become secondary to that competition. That's the way the world goes, the way the ECB, the business model goes. We saw, we saw it with when T20 came in. They went into bed with Alan Stanford very quickly. That fell very flat very quickly because he ended up in an orange boiler suit in a prison somewhere. But as soon as there's any money on the, on the table, that's where... They go, and I can understand why, because it's a business at the end of the day, and they want to make money for the game so that they can sustain it in the future. But the danger of the eight-city thing, if it really does work, and if it really does tick all the boxes, and it does delight people, and it does start to get everybody's juices flowing, the T20 Blast will not be seen as the premier tournament in this country anymore. It will be, it will be by virtue of the fact the 100 is the premier tournament, it will be downgraded. And overseas players won't want to play in the T20 Blast. They want to play in the 100, etc., etc. And then the 50-over competition, which has already been muted, has been downgraded, will become secondary and even, even worse. And the championship will be marginalised even further. It's already kind of almost bookending the season in, in kind of March, April, May, and then August, September. Champion, you know, we, we've seen superb Test Match cricket this year. The, the Ashes series has been magnificent. And the only way you're going to cultivate players to play Test Match cricket I've been tearing my hair out at some, at some stages watching Jason Royce going hard at balls outside the off stump. And they are the sort of shots you get if you, play, if you pick players who play white ball cricket. If you are basically giving players that play white ball cricket all of the money, they are going to play hard at balls outside off stump and, and nick off the third slip. If you do that in the first ball of a one-day game, you've probably got four runs and you go on and score 100. If you do it in the first over of an Ashes series, you're caught at third slip and, you, and you're gone. And we are cultivating at the moment players who play white ball cricket, see the monies in white ball cricket, and see that as being the future. And the the longer-term view, if the 100 does work, will be that first-class cricket will become secondary in in the powers that be's opinion. And I think for anybody that loves Test Match cricket, for anybody that loves their county, particularly the counties like Leicestershire, Northampton, Somerset, who are not the so-called fashionable counties at Test Match Grounds, I think the 100 is a huge worry. I can entirely understand that. I will give you the same answer I gave to Paul Allerton a, a Marriott in Leicester two or three years ago, which is that I genuinely, genuinely do not know. My instinct tells me that it's um, an enormous risk and a gamble and that it's a danger to other forms of cricket. But... I don't know. I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't know how it's going to be received. And most importantly, I don't know how the rest of the funds and the funds generated are then going to be uh, distributed. So with that in mind, I'm going to tell you the one thing that I would do to change world cricket, if I could do it at a stroke, it is to distribute the enormous sums of money that the ICC accrue every year by selling rights to the Champions Trophy and the World Cup and the World T20. And I would distribute them far more unevenly to the countries that need the money, the likes of Sri Lanka, 
and New Zealand and Pakistan and South Africa and the West Indies and not so much to England, Australia and India because I believe that we should be trying to seed uh, competition. I don't think India needs the money. I don't think England really needs the money. I don't think Australia really needs the money. I think they're able to pay their players sufficient quantities of money to maintain test cricket. And they do this by having decent contracts for people to play for their country and to play test cricket for their country, which is why those series are longer and they attract more people, both in India, Australia and in England. What we need is for Mohammed Amir not to be incentivized to give up test cricket because his contract is pitiful in playing for Pakistan and he's going to bowl half of his overs in the UAE which aren't conducive to to his type of bowling and they're not compensating for it at all so that he is attracted to being available for the Big Bash and the Caribbean Premier League and the 100 and the Bangladesh Premier League and the Pakistan Super League where he can earn considerably more and I don't have any truck with people saying well he should just want to play for his country. His career will end as a fast bowler when he's 32, 33. He's got five, six years to earn money. And he's not got any other job prospects off the back of it. So, of course, he's got to earn money. So what we need the ICC to do is to ensure that Pakistan can play him a, a proper wage and can pay South Africans a proper wage so Duan Olesia doesn't move to Yorkshire, where Yorkshire can pay him more money and make him more secure than South Africa can. We can't rely on people wanting to play for their country above sorting out their families and having secure futures. And we need to have a system that's far more like the, I mean, it can't be quite like American football or baseball where, you know, draft picks are done on the basis of where you finished last year. But to have a more equitable distribution of the finances to make competition work rather than have the ECB, Cricket Australia and the BCCI think of themselves as businesses and say, well, we generate the most amount of money, therefore we should get the most amount of money. That is a really short-sighted view. It'll reduce competition and if we're not careful, it'll turn everything into franchise cricket and international cricket will wither on the vine. And all those things you talk about, about people not having proper red ball techniques will take hold. And yes, there needs to be changes to the, the county cricket calendar. I've got to say this year, the changes were positive, weren't they? We've had quite a lot of county cricket in May and June and the beginning of July. Uh, and there is a lot of cricket to fit in. It's not easy. So they made an improvement this year. The danger is that next year they'll go back to a sort of April, May and September heavy um, calendar in England. But I think that we need to think wider than England and we've got to see that competition in test cricket has to be kept alive New Zealand don't play enough test cricket, neither does South Africa. Um, And there isn't enough money to pay the players from the West Indies, South Africa and Pakistan to keep them involved. New Zealand cricketers are amazing in that they do still play for their countries and they play really, really well, but you can't point at New Zealand and say, well, that means you've got a sustainable model because they're they're outliers here, outperforming their, their wealth and their standing in the game and we should be grateful to them for it but that's not that's not the future model
The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. Their ethos, we love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. Of looking at the domestic um, summer, you know, people have different you know, d- different possibilities that aren't necessarily the 100. And I think by playing the championship in a block, playing all the competitions in a block, you then give them all their moment in the sunshine. And by playing the championship from the start of the season to maybe the start of July, when you know the county champion by the start of July, you, you play nothing but championship cricket. You, you reward people that want to play red ball and want to play long innings. They get used to doing that. You could, you, you could put the 50 over as the um, day before the championship match starts so that supporters from Durham to Somerset can go for two games rather than just the one. And they're rewarded for maybe having a week somewhere um, because it's actually, you know, you make it into a week because you have five days potentially at, at a game. So I, I, I think there's, there's, you know, and then you play the T20 in the box. I think what we've always, always done wrong with T20 cricket is we've, um, we invented it. This is what England are so good at, isn't it? We invent things and then we give them away and we watch everybody else do, do them better than us. And that's what we've done with T20. We've, we've kind of got distracted, like I said, with Alan Stanford at one stage and then we just watched the IPL mm. blossom and then the big bashes come along and done it better than we do it. And I, I think, you know, one of the things we did really wrong was playing it once a week and trying to stretch it throughout the season because everywhere it works is played in a, con- a concentrated block where everybody gets into the into that mode gets into the spirit of t20 and watches it develop and then sees the champions at the end of it and i think that's what we should do with the t20 blast not have an erroneous championship game suddenly just crop up in the middle of it no. somewhere where that, everybody that, is, suddenly... that is ridiculous that is yeah, ridiculous and, and makes to... no sense at all you, you talk to the players and it's actually very difficult to change your mentality and your mindset and your technique back from one format to the other and that's why you know it's noticeable this summer when the first day of the championship game that came in the middle of the t20s there were low scores because players were in t20 mode so i I think we should play the championship in a block we play the t20 in the block and then my my suggestion my personal preference rather than having the hundreds and don't get me wrong i'm I'm not naive the hundreds going to happen because the ecb have invested every single thing they can possibly do in into this hundred including their reputations but t10 is is goldus for a tv company t10 is the perfect length for a tv show and i know it's you know, some people will say it's dumbing down from T20 and it's just, you know, another kind of, you're just halving a T20, which you effectively are. But at least you're keeping the cricket laws. You, you're making it understandable for cricket fans. Because I think the problem at the moment is for cricket fans, the 100 looks like a bit of a jokey format and it's not cricket. For people outside of the game who the ECB are trying to attract, it is still cricket. At least T10 is what it says on the 10. It's 10 over the side. And it's, it, it's, you know, bite-sized TV yeah. size for a TV company to do. And, what, and one of the advantages of doing that is if you adopted that and became the first country to actually play a proper T10 tournament, you played it over maybe three or four weeks, you could have multi-game days at grounds. You could have on a Saturday afternoon, everybody rocks up at Trent Bridge, for example, where not start off by playing Yorkshire in the first game of the day, then Yorkshire play Somerset in the second game of the day, and then Somerset play Knots in the TV game um, in the evening. For fans, you get six hours of entertainment, and 
those you know you can get through a competition quite quickly if you play multi-game days like that. Well, I could, I could see I can see the case of that, and Kevin Hand says that. I think what we're all still struggling to do is try to work out how to get all these different competitions to be played in a variable and short summer. And when we were younger, what used to happen was that we had four competitions, and it was it nearly destroyed our cricketers because we played two county championship games and one county championship game actually had a day when they would go off and play a John Player League game in the middle of it and come back. Yeah. So we talk about how difficult it is for, for cricketers to adapt. They've, in England, they've been having to do it ever since we decided that we wanted to have lots and lots of limited over cricket and lots of different sponsors. There was John Player and there was Benson Hedges and there was Gillette and, and there was Schweppes for the county championship. So the TCCB, as was, needed to maintain four different competitions I do think that some a more elegant way is to have a knockout. I think the beautiful thing about the Gillette Cup was that some you know you, you knocked out half the teams in one go uh, instead of making everybody play all the time, and you would yeah. be able to televise most of those games, which would make life a lot easier. I don't know that I don't know that I I've got a solution to it. I think we do have a problem that unlike any other country that plays cricket, our summer is short and open to the vicissitudes of meteorological calamity, which is also the big fear to me for the, the 100 competition, because when that's launched, if we get a wet August, which is not unusual, then that could prove terminal and calamitous for it. That's what it is, and we're trying to put too many competitions with too many teams, arguably, into all of those competitions and have them all as round-robin and league formats, and that creates too much cricket. And uh, some of those formats suffer from in, from integrity problems, as the county championship will do next year when the first division is increased to 10 teams, but they'll only play 14 matches, which I know is a problem that they've had in years gone by. They've played 28 games with 17 counties. So these problems are not new problems, and I don't think we've ever found a perfect solution. I thought we got closest to it when, when you have uh, home and away and, and two divisions. But um, there's also... I think there's a genuine problem that 18 counties might be too many. Uh, I don't think eight centres is, is the right number either. So uh, and then you've got to say, well, which counties don't you want? And then that causes problems. So maybe it's 14 counties and two divisions of seven, and you play 12 four-day games, and then that releases a considerable amount of time for your other formats. I don't, I don't think I know the solution. I'm going to take you back to the answer I gave to Paul Allen. I, I don't know. We were in the bar. And it was getting more and more heated because um, he, he really didn't like the answer, I don't know, on the basis <laughs> that, that we are supposed to know. But yeah. I think sometimes I throw my hands up and I try to be honest and say, I don't know. I have got one very quick other answer to that question as well. And I know we've, okay. we've pressed the time, but the, um, I do think there is a, you know, you, you mentioned it there, but I do think there is a massive um, threat of burnout for some of our big players. Um, or any of our players, really. I mean, I, I, as you know, I've been home and away with Yorkshire for a couple of years, and there was one trip we did, which was, I think, 17 days away from home, where you play, they basically played um, four-day game, one-day game, four-day game, four-day game, came back, had a day off, and then got into T20, in, into the T20 season that year. And you're asking players to entertain and to play at their 100% best when they are, quite frankly, at times knackered. You know, the days the days off that people see on the fixture calendar, they're often spent travelling to the next game because England's a big place yeah. and um, they often drive themselves to, to grounds or they're sat on the coach being driven to a ground. So the number of days off in a county summer is next to none for a county professional if they're playing all formats. And 
people, you know, the powers that be do need to obviously get the most out of cricket and to get as much cricket as they can, but they also need to look after the players massively. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. Just a quick break from my chat with Dan to tell you about a couple of podcasts about to happen. I'm not sure what order they're going to come in, but I was joined by Dan Whiting of the Middle Stump blog. And we look back last 40 years iconic moments in English cricket on English soil. There's a reason for that as well, which you'll find out when you actually listen to that podcast. And I had the great pleasure of talking to Henry Alonga, the former Zimbabwe fast bowler of black armband protest fame. And here's a little bit of a snippet of Henry before we get back to myself and Dan. You know, a lot of people have done a 360 now. Uh, obviously, when Robert Mugabe showed his true colours in later years and the economy was decimated and people were still disappearing and people still getting tortured, etc. Then people started to go, oh, okay, the penny dropped for them, you know. Um, ultimately, I was, I was kind of, if anything, disappointed that the very people that I was trying to protest on behalf of, you know, didn't get it. They, they just didn't. A lot of people didn't get it. They didn't understand what it was all about. They called us sellouts. They called us you know, traitors and all sorts of weird names that just don't make any sense, you know. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you know, um, who's the bad guy here? You know, how many people have I killed? Zero. You know, how many people have I destroyed their livelihoods? None. Uh, um, what am I actually doing here? Well, I'm actually asking the powers that be to sort of stop bullying people and killing people and doing all sorts of terrible things. So how am I the bad guy? But, you know, in, in, in many Zimbabweans' eyes, that was, that was fair game. It was a fair call. It's that Badger style. Now then, let's move on and away from these weightier topics because we've got some we've got some rather frivolous ones to come now. If you could be famous, and you are that famous badger in the field of cricket, but if you could be famous in a different field, what would that be? Often people say to a, to a cricketer, you know, what would you really love to have been good at? And Mark Butcher would really love to be a pop star. I mean, he might very well be. Uh, a lot of people want to be rock musicians. I think Charlie Bagnall's doing his bass guitaring and wants all that kind of that joy the joy of music and the adulation perhaps that will go with it well what uh, what field would you like to be in you just mentioned two of the recent guests there from the cricket budget podcast i've never been musical so that's not me at all and i've never been able to sing so that's not me either um it would have to be another kind of sport and i think golf i think to be a, a top class golf pro and to win a major and to be in that position where you're on the 18th green and the 18th fairway needing to get down in three to win a major and you do it yeah that must feel as good as ben stokes felt at heading me that uh, the, the other day i think you know to be able to to master a golf club and to to maneuver that ball around a, a treacherous course and to come out on top that would be incredible and you earn decent money as well i am disgusted at you badger i'm genuinely <laughs> horrified and deeply upset because i don't know if i've ever told you my feelings about golf 
I, I think it needs to be eradicated. I think it takes <laughs> up way too much space. I think it's an elitist pursuit. I think that it's uh, a single person sport, not a team sport. I'm always very suspicious of those. I think the clothing is terrible. I think the pernickety rules. I think the having to wear the right colour clothing when you're in the clubhouse. And, and most importantly, most importantly, it steals cricketers from club cricket just when you need them. Just when your old dobber has got to about 45 and you need him for another five or six years to keep the second 11 afloat near the bottom of Division 3, wheedling away for 20 overs. He says, oh, no, I've discovered golf. I'm going to go and play golf. You know, no, no. Viv Richards, when asked this question, said that he wished he'd been a golfer rather than a cricketer. And it always pains me. I will allow he you... He would have been a good golfer, I'll tell you. Even, yes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> In a long drive, I'm pretty certain of that. I'm an egomaniac. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to be a musician. Absolutely not, because I, that doesn't appeal to me at all, especially, you know, gigging. Very loud. Hurt the, hurt the ears. But I would love to have been a really good actor. I would have loved that. I'd have loved to be on stage of, a, of an evening. And I'd, I I'd have loved to being an actor. I mean, I don't know if it would suit me because really, learning lines is a lot more like hard work, whereas commentating you make it up as you go along. <laughs> I would have loved it. I'd have loved a bit of the old LA lifestyle and then come back here and do some stuff at the West End and finish late at night and then go to the Groucho Club and have a few drinks to decompress and walk through the streets of London at three in the morning with the grease paint still on. Oh, but yeah. I was never good enough at it. I'll be honest with you. I did a bit of acting when I was younger, and um, I wasn't. I wasn't all that really, unfortunately. So no, but that is what I kind of imagined as a child. It's how I imagined myself, but it didn't come to pass. I like this question that you pose, people. You've, this is a historical question. I say historical. It can be. It doesn't have to be dead people. It could be live people. But who in all of history up to the present day would you most like to meet? Recently, people have been making it more of the kind of dinner party question rather than the, the one-off, yes. which I think is, that's, that's fine. A regular name that comes up that I would have loved to have met, um, and when I went to Cape Town to cover Yorkshire in 2012, um, I went across the Robin Island and looked at the cell that Nelson Mandela spent 27 years or whatever in, in captivity in and went to the chalk mine that he almost went blind you know, digging out and what he came out to do after he got released and kind of forgave people and, and made friends with people and, and took South Africa forward. One hell of an individual, I think, Nelson Mandela, and I would have loved to have had an hour of his time over a, over a, a, a nice fruit cocktail to, uh, to yeah. talk to him about his, his, his life because I think he'd have been a fascinating person to talk to. So what, we'll, do the, we'll alternate these. You go with your, your first dinner party guest next. Oh, my first dinner party guest. Okay, because I, I, I sort of want... I sort of want six, but I'm not going to necessarily talk about all of them. So otherwise, we'll be here all night. The Empress Livia, wife of the Emperor Augustus, she was a fruity dude, a woman who basically was the power behind the throne of Augustus at a time of massive revolutionary change, hurtling Rome out of its rather staid Republican past and giving it the template for a future. Ruthless, probable poisoner, probable killer of her own husband in the end when he got too old and useless, promoter of her own son, killer of various ones of his, of his uh, uh, enemies, I suppose you might say, but a, a powerful, powerful woman 
and also played by Sean Phillips and I, Claudius. And I really, really thought that was one of the great performances of, on British TV. And so I've always kind of imagined her like Sean Phillips. I don't know whether it's Sean Phillips I want at the dinner party or the real Empress Olivia, because she might, she might just poison my figs and then I'd be dead before I even, you know, got to the coffee uh, and had a proper chat. But I've, I've always been intoxicated. I, I was... I studied classics, studied in inverted commas. I didn't really read very much in the original languages, but I was fascinated by the history of ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And I just think, just to find out what was going on then and what was really happening and who were really poisoning who, I was, I was just desperately keen to know. For me, it's like a who done it, and I don't know the answer, so I want her at my dinner party. Better friend to have them than anyway, anyway, so... My my second of the three guests, and I'm not quite sure it would be one of these, because it would be musical based, because I'm very into my music. As as I mentioned before, I can't play and I can't sing, but I like listening to other people doing it. It's been an important part of my life. My favourite band when I was younger was The Cure. Um, Robert Smith, I think, is fantastic. If anybody watched Glastonbury this year, their headline act was immense. And I think he's a fascinating, fascinating man. Lloyd Cole of Lloyd Cole and the Commemorations oh. fame is somebody who I admire hugely and still kind of... I actually spoke to him a little bit on Facebook because I follow his Facebook group and I really like him and I've seen him quite a few times live. And then going across the pond, Bruce Springsteen is somebody who I think is um, very, very good. Read his book, um, followed his life and read kind of what he's done and how he got to where he is and how hard he had to work to do it. So I think he's a, a very sort of big inspiration and the like. I don't like all of his music, but I like some of his music and I think he's, he's, uh, he certainly gives his crowds plenty of attention and, and time when he's on stage. So it'd be one of those three and I'm not quite sure. If you'd asked me a few years back, it'd have probably been Morrissey, but having read a bit oh, more yeah. about Morrissey's opinions on various things, I don't think I could stomach him. So it would be either Robert Smith, Lloyd Cole or Bruce Springsteen is my second guest. Robert Smith, the cure, was one of the first gigs I ever went to at Wembley in 1988. Those big, big gigs. Uh, I get that. And Bruce Springsteen is much beloved of Henry Brown and uh, Charles Bagnall of TMS fame. I'm going to let you have all of them because I'm now going to throw in two more politicians. Thomas Cromwell, advisor to Henry VIII. I've always been intoxicated by that period in English history. We're sort of almost taught that as a matter of rote learning now, aren't we? But there are two very, very different ways of interpreting what was going on in, in England in the 16th century. And this is Britain's first Brexit, of course, when they first breached from Rome, if you see Rome as a kind of European Union in a way, and hurtled off on our own. And I want to know whether Thomas Cromwell was pulling Henry VIII's strings or whether Henry VIII knew what he was doing all along. So I want him there. And he's a ruthless working, son of a working class butcher who taught himself. And I always find autodidacts particularly fascinating because having been very fortunate in life to have been brought up uh, and sent to, you know, a good school and a good university. Learning to me was was almost a, a right, not a privilege. And I feel the people who, for whom it, it's a privilege are often the most intellectually curious and interesting people and therefore would make great dinner party guests. And along those lines, and this is a little bit Empress Livia, but Julius Caesar, I mean, what a geezer. Probably <laughs> ruthless, but my God, what a bloke he was. And if I can have him after his death so he can tell me exactly who did what to him as well, because, again, it's a bit of the whodunit thing. I don't believe the historical reports. I want to know, about, I want to know more about it. 
I mean, I'm, I'm an enormous fan of Julius Caesar in a, in a way. I mean, whilst at the same time being vaguely petrified of him, but he he changed the Western world for good with what he did. So those are my two other political figures. I've got two people from the world of cricket. Have you got any cricket people that you want at your party? My, my next Go on three, then, have yours. Um, my, Go on, then. The, the end of the table. The risk of my dinner party is it might get a bit clicky. There's a cricket group, there's a music group, and then there's uh, um, Nelson Mandela and me at the top end. But uh, right. we, we, we spent um, a few very nice days in Barbados, and we were very lucky to go out for a few drinks with Joel Garner. And I heard him talk about his time at Somerset. And I'm not a Somerset fan, but I was a massive admirer of uh, that Somerset team of that era, of both them, Richards and Garner. And I want to invite all three of them to come along to my dinner party. I want to see how they get on, the chat between them. Um, I think it would be quite good fun. I think it would be quite lively. I think my dinner party is heading to be a bit livelier than your dinner party, by the sound of it. Um, and I think uh, watching, watching Big Bird and watching uh, IT Botham and Viv Richards chatting about yesteryear and having a, having a few drinks along the way would be rather entertaining. That would be magnificent. I've got two cricketers, two cricket people, I should say. I've got the greatest Englishman there has ever been, Douglas Jardine, who somehow managed to go into the cauldron of battle against Australia with a dubious but entirely legal method for getting Australia and Bradman out and stuck to his guns despite the fact that they were all going absolutely berserk at him and cables are flying hither and yon, and I just think that shows such strength of character. And I would just love to talk to him about about cricket. I mean, I just think he's one of the great tacticians, one of the most fascinating characters in, in British history. I mean, he's, he's Scottish, really, but um, Captain England. And then the other man I met once, but because it was so fleeting, so, so fleeting, and then he died not long after it's all been it's been one of the great regrets of mine that I didn't get into commentating earlier and Tony Cozier was a man that I wished I'd spent oh, evenings yeah. with and I've been told that evenings around his place in Barbados were legendary and I had about a two minute I say conversation I just babbled at him because I was so awestruck in his presence and he very gently just he just um, knotted my tie for me properly and patted me on the shoulder <laughs> to calm my nerves. <laughs> and i just love to talk to him about that great West Indies team and, and everything he'd seen in cricket and to ask him about commentary because I thought that he was just technically one of the most gifted commentators the world's ever produced and it was the voice of a whole era for me. I'm having one complete wild card and it's because I think this woman might be one of the great unsung heroes and geniuses of the 20th century. And it's actress and inventor of mobile phone telephony and person who arguably did a huge amount to win the Allies Second World War, Hedy Lamarr. What okay. a woman she was. Um, if you're not familiar with her, Google her and you'll discover an incredible life at a time when women were not necessarily thought to be scientifically proficient. She was both incredibly beautiful and incredibly intelligent and um, I just think she would be a fascinating person. Her and the Empress Livia would get on like a house on fire. <laughs> and uh, I'd love to see how Douglas Jardine, Tony Cozier, and Julius Caesar and Thomas Cromwell cope with those two on the table. I'd be fascinated. Would you like to come to my dinner party as well? I'll, I'll allow you to come to mine and sit next to Viv. Mm. 
Oh, stable. please. Mm. Yeah. That would be absolutely heavenly. Be, I think we've got two great dinner parties going on here. Are you looking to get your business in front of the cricket world? Join forces with the fastest growing cricket podcast on the web, the Cricket Budget Podcast, brought to you in association with your business. Take an advert on the pod or become the headline sponsor. Contact us, cricketbadger at hotmail.com for some very reasonable prices and joining the fun as the Cricket Budget Podcast continues to go from strength to strength. Top of your bucket list. Ebony Rain for Brent has a genuine one, which included abseiling off the Burj Khalifa. So, what's top of your bucket list? Nothing high up. Nothing high up on mine because I'm not a big heights yeah. fan. Me um, neither. Career wise, career wise bucket list. I want. To, I'd love to get more um, cricket commentary work. I'd love your job to be honest, Dan. Um, but hands uh, off. You, you seem to have got your feet under the table. Um, I, I think, gen, genuinely speaking, if, if I had the money, this would this would um, need quite a bit of cash. I've always thought if I won the lottery, I'd take a year off and I'd spend the interest while, you know, put the money in the bank. It would gain interest, and I could spend that interest as I went around the world. Oh yeah, just travelling. And yeah, and I, I, to tie it in with cricket, you know, basically, I've always wanted to go to the IPL and watch the IPL, Big Bash yeah. as well, and basically to kind of have twelve months where you strategically travelled around the world, saw some fantastic parts of the world as well, and hit India at the time of the IPL, hit Australia at the time of the Big Bash, included cricket in the itinerary, but not not just cricket, saw some of the, the fantastic parts of the world that I've not been to. I think that's a very laudable aim. I couldn't really think of anything, because I'm currently doing what I love doing more than anything in the world. I'm going to give you the honest answer. Top of my bucket list is to be alive and still doing this when I'm 75. That's a good answer. Morning or night person, what are you? Having met me, I think you know the answer to this. I think I, I come alive the longer the day goes on. I'm not very good in the mornings. Um, when I have to get to places early on, it is, a, it is a chore. When the alarm clock goes off, it is horrendous, and I'm a bit bleary-eyed for the first few hours of the day. I tend to, if I go out, I don't get out very often these days, <laughs> but if I do go out, I tend to make the most of it. And I remember being out in Barbados. I'm not sure if you're out with us that night, but if I was out in Barbados and there was a few of us in a bar at about two o'clock and they all started looking at each other and saying, I think it's time to go. And I nearly stayed out on my own. And if it wasn't for the <laughs> fact that I'm a bit of a coward, I would have, I would have done. And um, because the night cannot go on long enough sometimes when I'm having fun and I'm with good people, it just wants to carry on and on and on. And um, the morning can go and uh, go and disappear. Mornings are a problem. Nights can go on as long as they like. I agree with every single sentiment in that. I think it's a cricket person thing, you know. I think we, uh, we had the, we had a very good night in um, Barbados. We went to that fantastic club, didn't we? And we were playing. We mentioned yes. it on the podcast before, but we we went out and pretended to bowl them back in the darkness um, with a few oh, runs inside. Yeah. Oh, um, and very run very good evening. Yeah, it's a it's a night thing for me. I I just love being in a warm climate at night with the chirping of the the cicadas and the crickets it's just you can't beat it with good company and booze it's a it's a lovely way to live and the mornings are horrendous which is why i always quite like day night internationals i love this question you've got a time machine where are you going to go and when where's your time machine going to take you i'm kind of imagining that you're sort of there observing but you might not be you might be participating i suppose i mean you might be in some kind of strange orgiastic revel or or you might, or you might just be looking on from afar. Where, where are you going? 
I could I could be doing both at that orgy stick revel. Um, you, the, <laughs> you mentioned one one part of history where which fascinates me, and that's the Bodline series down under. Um, your dinner party guest being one of the yeah. prime people in, involved in that. I think being in the ground watching the Australians reacting to what Douglas Jardine was doing on the field and Harold Arwood was putting into practice would have been very very interesting indeed from a cricket perspective. I'm, I'm fascinated down by old Pathé newsreels and you watch some of the um, greats of yesteryear playing in black and white in, in fuzzy images yes. and, and sometimes I, I look at those and I think how on earth did they score runs because you see some of the shots they were playing and and you're thinking they didn't actually look that good but when you actually really think about it the Harold Larwoods of their day were bowling no slower than fast bowlers these days you know he could he could stick it down there at a decent lick so Padman's feet must have had to have moved pretty well to have been able to combat that <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm with you there. I, 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 again, gave myself two. One of them was the Adelaide Test match, which I mentioned already, 1932-3, just to see just the commotion that was caused by Bodyline and also to understand it and understand the speed of it and exactly how the players played. Um, and there are so many. I mean, if you have a time machine, I would just be going, I'd be watching Jessup, I'd be watching Trumper, I'd be watching Barnes trying to work out what this great bowler is supposed to be doing. But I've tried to take it away from cricket, and it's another one of my classical fixations. I'd go to the Battle of Salamis in 480, which is a naval battle, which resulted in the Persian invasion of Greece basically coming to an end when Themistocles, the great Athenian naval general, thwarted the Persian forces while being massively outnumbered off the coast of Egina, a small island near Athens, and all of Athens have been evacuated. I mean, just to imagine and see the site of a whole city, a big classical city. And I've always wanted to understand, really, you know, how they lived, what they ate, what they did, because it's always been theoretical and it's always been from, from books and sources for me. And I'd just love to have witnessed that and witnessed that incredible moment in Western history, which effectively created the separation between East and West, which is a separation we live with to this day, not necessarily with terrific consequences, but I would uh, I would love to understand that rather than just read a rather dodgy historical account by Herodotus. So I think on the basis that you're going to have gone to the Adelaide test and you're going to come back with mobile phone footage for me, I will take <laughs> Salamis and, and you take you take the Adelaide test. Will be. I'd now have that. to remember to take my phone charger, wouldn't I? Because otherwise I might be in trouble. There is one other place I'd like to go to, which isn't cricket, and oh, that's yeah. Robin Hood times. I always fascinated by Robin Hood. I like the oh, yeah. outlaw kind of mentality. I like living in the forests and kind of getting up to the shenanigans. And uh, I also like the kind of robbing from the rich and giving to the poor kind of part of that because he was an outlaw, but he was a good outlaw. And uh, it'd be very disappointing if he wasn't, though, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be really disappointing if you discovered it was all a lie and that really he was just <laughs> like totally so strong? Just man. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, whether, whether he was a fox or whether he was a human or whichever incarnation of Robin Hood it was, I just find all of that kind of, you know, the, the swords and the, uh, the bows and arrows and all that kind of stuff. I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm with you there. It was always intoxicating as a child, wasn't it? Now then, we've only got three more to go. Where would you live if you could live anywhere in the world? This, I think it's a really tough question, this one, because obviously you've got cricket to think about or... Are you allowing yourself a private jet so you can get from wherever you are back to watch the cricket? Because I wanted to give myself everywhere in the world, you see. 
And my favourite places okay. in the world aren't necessarily ones that, that have cricket. So I've sort of given myself fabulous travel, but really sustainable, I, ideally solar-powered. I don't want to upset the, the environmentalist movement because I have sympathy with them. I, I tweeted a, a picture of John Travolta's house the other day, and he's got an airport actually attached to his house. He's got a, he parks his plane pretty much about 30 yards from his front door. So you can have that. You, well, I'll, let you, I'll let you live in a house where you can do that. You've got a private jet you can jet off you. to watch the cricket. Yeah. Um, but my, it's very simple. The, the place I've always loved going back to, I've been there, lucky enough to be there about five times now um, through cricket. So it's been a working trip, but there's been plenty of downtime as well. There's been Barbados. So I've had a good time there with you, but I've had good times there other times as well. Um, it's a cricket place. They know their cricket. They love their cricket. It's chilled. It's always around about the same temperature. It's nice and sunny. Everybody's friendly. I just think having a place there. I once drove past. I hired a car once, Dan, and I drove past this dilapidated place, and I looked at it, and I got out, and I looked at. Uh, I went actually went down the path to it and walked around it, and I thought, right, if that was in Leeds, that probably cost me about eighty grand, and you could do it up, and you could, you could. It was big enough to make it into almost two parts, so you could have like bed and breakfast. And it was right on the beach. And I thought, you can do that. I, yeah, this is a new life for me. The, the badger could give up being a badger and just come out here and be a, a B&B, badger and breakfast. Um, <laughs> but the, it, 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 I, I went back. I took the number down and the, the um, email address off the sign and went back to the hotel, got my laptop out, looked it up. It would have cost me best part of £20 million to buy this plot because the, the planning permission had been granted for this place, this beautiful place. You know, it just needed a few floors and liquor paint and, and a bit of tender loving care. This beautiful place was going to be demolished and two state-of-the-art modern flat kind of places were going to be built um, overlooking mm. the sea because in Barbados you can't actually get planning permission to build new next to the beach um, because the beach is all public property people can walk along it so you have to buy somebody else's place if you want to get anywhere overlooking the beach and they're rather expensive so that kind of knocked that dream mm. on the head very very quickly but Barbados I just think it's a beautiful place I'm with you I think Barbados is paradisical it's absolutely glorious but on the basis that I hope that I might be asked to go there by people if I can keep commentating I've chosen somewhere where I wouldn't get to go for work and that is, I've got a, I love the Mediterranean. I adore it. I love the smells of it. I love the food. I love the people. I love the buildings. I love the history. So I want a house in Nice, definitely not Monaco, Nice, because I think it's just an absolutely gorgeous city. And I want a little flat, flat on the island of Capri, off the coast of uh, Italy. I love Italian culture. I love, I love Southern French culture. I just love that feeling of wandering into a cafe, really good coffee, really good pastries, voices that are totally different, no cricket around me at all, just so as I don't feel guilty about the fact that I devote my entire life to something that, that is just one thing, even though, you know, as you know, I adore my cricket. I just think, you know, just seeing those old buildings is, and, and feeling that glorious European Mediterranean atmosphere. I think uh, that's, that's, my, that's my fantasy. I keep telling my wife that. She says it's too hot. It's that Badger style. If you could change one thing about yourself, and you are, let's face it, Badger, pretty much perfect. What is the one thing that you would change? What, what, what would alter in, in Badger world? I think, and this is very honest of me to say this, um, because I am perfect and 
honesty is mm-hmm. part of that. A couple of people have given me this very similar answer recently on the podcast, and when I've heard them say it, I thought, that's me, um, in that I think I'm actually quite good at what I do, but I don't tell people enough that. And I think sometimes you find in life that the people that say they're fantastic, people start to believe them. It's a bit like Donald Trump. It's a bit like the ECB on the 100. If you tell, if you tell people often enough that everything's marvellous, people start to think that everything's marvellous. And I don't think I tell people enough that I am I am good. And I think, therefore, I sometimes disappear in people's memories and don't necessarily get the amount of working, working cricket and stuff that I, that I maybe deserve. Because I think I'm quite good at commentating, quite good at writing about cricket, and I would like to get more of it. I think that's true, Badger. And I think that's true, that's true of a lot of people. I think having self-confidence is a very important thing and communicating it. And I think that's a, that's a very noble thing. I, I, I suppose I sort of agree with you, although I'm, I, I don't know. I, I find it a little bit easier, perhaps. But I suppose that means I'm more arrogant. Well, what I would change about me is, and I do fixate about this, so I, would, I would exercise more and get healthier. I'm a... I'm a I'm oh, a I, need, I need that too. Oh, crikey. It's, it's the single most... A dreadful thing about about it's the only bad thing about my job is that uh, it's wonderful, but it plays to my my laziness because I'm not a morning person. I get up and then go in and do my commentary, and then when I've finished, it's half seven. It's time for drinks and carousing, isn't it? And I've had a big breakfast, and then I've had the lunch that they they put out for you in Edgebast, and it's the, one of the loveliest restaurants in Britain. And then you go out to eat in the evening, and then you think a bottle of wine, and before you know it, you're two stone heavier. And you're still smoking because you haven't got around to giving that up. And, and you just, you know, it's not good for you. So, for me, it's get fit. I would love to do that. Last question, final question. Now then, in 10 years' time, where is the badger? We discussed this at the top of the, uh, at the, of the 100th podcast as to where you were going to be or where the podcast was going to be. But where's the badger going to be in 10 years' time? Is he going to be doing his podcast from that seafront apartment in Barbados with Joel Garner, Viv Richards, and Ian Botham around for dinner, and Bruce Springsteen knocking on the door, and Lloyd Cole and all of his commotions hanging out in the back garden <laughs> just playing you some music. Is that what's happening? Does that anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll take, yeah, I'll take that. That, that. That's actually better than my answer I was going to give you. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be working in cricket. I would love to be to a stage where the Badger podcast is actually earning me some money because it doesn't really earn me a huge amount. Um, and I think it's good enough too. And I would like to grow it. I'd like to, as I said before, kind of go out there and do things myself. And that would extend to maybe the answer I gave you about the bucket list of actually having a bit of a mobile podcast kind of setup where I could go out to the IPL, I could go out to the Big Bash, go out to various tournaments, travel the world, and make the Badger podcast a little bit more in person, but actually truly global. I think that would be marvellous. If I was doing that in 10 years' time, if I was on a plane in 10 years' time, heading off to somewhere sunny to watch some cricket with my kit in the luggage container, um, heading off to do some recording, maybe doing a bit of commentary along the way as well, that would be absolutely perfect. Oh, Badger. Well, I wish you the very better luck in that because you deserve it. And, uh, and I'm sure it will happen. When you pose that question to me, I, I love your, your positive attitude. I, I've written down three words here. Dead. Still alive. Wrote commentating. <laughs> just wrote nothing. <laughs> because basically, if I'm dead, I'm dead. If I'm alive, I'll either be commentating or there'll be nothing for me to do because I'll be 60. And... 
I did used to have a proper job, and I didn't really like it very much. And I'm in, I'm in cricket because for all sorts of reasons. But if I, if I was shunted out of cricket for whatever reason, I don't know what I'd do. I think I'd be a lost soul. Uh, I'd probably have sold my flat and be be living, uh, you know, on the on the Isle of Skye, trying to eke out what what remains I had of it while listening into all my former colleagues on Testback Special. But the point. Well, I'll tell you what, Dan. Sir. I'll, t- I'll tell no. you what, Dan. I'll make you. A, I'll make you a deal now. That if you are living under a bridge in ten years' time, and my podcast is doing what I just said it's going to do, you can be my assistant on the podcast. You can come around oh, with me. Oh, Badger, that is very kind, and I would jump at that if I'm under a bridge. I might jump at it anyway. Actually, it sounds like a great. Like, your your podcast ten years' time sounds absolutely spiffing. With a bit of luck, we'll be doing it from the same places, and that would not be marvellous because. I, I sense that it's it's what we both want to be doing, and uh, and it's been an absolute joy getting your answers to a series of questions that you pose everybody else, but no one ever no one ever asked you, Badger, and now they have. And yeah, we asked at the top about you know how you felt about getting to your hundredth podcast. We need to ask you now how you feel about digging back in and getting to the end of your hundred and first. I was lucky enough last October to share a, um, a commentary box with. Brian Lara out in Abu Dhabi, and I need to have his kind of mentality now, don't I? Uh, you know, 100 is not good enough, is it? You need to go big. It needs to be a daddy 100. I need to get to the 200, 300, and then raise my back 500, 500 in first-class cricket, yeah, for, for Brian. So uh, um, if I can channel a bit of Brian Charles and push on with uh, some great guests in the future, including yourself, hopefully, again, coming back in, in at various times. There's plenty of fascinating people out there in the world of cricket. I'd love to stick a microphone under and, and get on the podcast, and hopefully that will happen, and we can we can go from strength to strength. Badger, I believe it will happen, and it's been a joy, a pleasure, and a genuine honour to speak to you. All the very best, and congratulations on your 101. Thanks, Dan, and thanks for coming on. It's that Badger style. Thank you very much for playing your part in taking us this far on the Cricket Badger podcast. It is very much appreciated. Thanks for the lend of your ears and thank you for the comments along the way. And we'll be back soon with very many more. Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.